Hi, Sadashma. How are we feeling? I think feeling pretty good. I'm very excited for today's episode. Me too. In light of the ongoing United Nations Conference on Climate Change, or COP27, in Egypt's Sharm el-Sheikh, we have a few of our friends dialing in to discuss topics surrounding COP today. But before we start answering their calls, I'm Satashma. I'm Simone. Welcome back to Anthropause. Episode 5, Part 1, Pre-COP 27. It's so good to see you. Let's start this episode by talking a little about you. Where are you from? What have you been up to? Let's hear a little from you. All right. Thank you so much, Simon. So um, yeah, my name is Julia and I am currently living in Vancouver, but I'm from Europe, uh, specifically from Italy. And I'm a graduate student at UBC, at the Institute for Resources, Environment and Sustainability. I am really passionate about energy policy, uh, climate, basically everything that um, concerns sort of like inter- at the intersection between politics, energy, climate, the environment. Two weeks ago, I was at uh, the ELCOI, like the local conference of Youth Canada. And I have to tell you that that was, that was pretty awesome. I, you know, it, it gave me a lot of hope. Sometimes academia can get really really frustrating and you know you just get home and you just want to lay on the couch all day thinking oh my god like are we actually doomed but (laughs) when you go to conferences like the local conference of youth and you see a lot of you know grassroots movements and a lot of activists and uh, you you see that there is actually a lot going on it really gives you hope so I guess uh, just to start all of this with on on a positive on a positive note I guess I am hopeful so you're definitely going to be our energy person for this episode um so yeah so let's get right into it um let's talk about the energy crisis Okay, so in 2022, that's been a big thing, big thing. In the past year, European Union countries like Germany, Italy, Netherlands, to name a few, announced plans to extend the lifetime of coal plants, reopen those that have been closed, and also just to like lift the cap on coal burning hours. This was not anticipated at all, right? So how do you see the European Union um, Like, how do you see them get back on track? Do you see them get back on track? Um, What do you have to say about this? Yeah, this is a great question. And I guess it's the whole, it's the whole point of the situation, right? Of of this, this whole mess that is going on right now in in Europe. And um, I, I want to kind of like talk about first the fact that I think it should have been anticipated, right? I mean, we were seeing, uh, the the thing that strikes me the most is that we're we're used to seeing the, I guess, fossil fuels as this reliable energy source. And now we see the energy crisis and it's like, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not a reliable energy source. And we should have known this, right? We should have known this because we saw that the markets were extremely unstable. Uh, Like the price fluctuations were there even before. And now like the energy crisis happened and everyone's like, oh yeah, so maybe we shouldn't have relied on fossil fuels that much. And I, I guess, I guess, like the, the the answer to the question that that you're posing here has to uh, be put a little bit in perspective. 
so there there's a sort of short-term and a long-term answer to all of this right so i i don't want to say that this is just you know like that we're completely doomed and that uh we're we're just gonna uh, see a huge backlash and we're just going to sort of like hitting reverse here um i i want to be hopeful about this right and i guess that uh, I, I don't I don't think the European Union, like and the, the countries in the European Union had a lot of like many choices. And this makes me really mad because uh, like climate scientists have been saying this forever. They were like, you have to transition, you have to try to invest more on renewables and maybe, I, I would say like not even maybe, I think I'm sure we wouldn't be here talking about all of this, right? And I guess even before um, the Russian invasion on Ukraine, we were seeing prices um, soaring, right? We were seeing uh, prices rising. And, and this was due to like a sort of faster than expected recovery, COVID recovery. So the world was like, it was sort of, I, I, would, I would call it an economics 101 situation, right? Where the recovery was really fast and the uh, uh, supply could not keep up with demand. So the prices were already rising, but I guess the uh, measures that the, the European Union had implemented and like European Union countries had implemented at that point were um, like, it, it, they were still possible, right? They were trying to intervening directly or by limiting pricing, uh, price, uh, energy prices, and then kind of like covering the difference. So they, they were adopting measures that they, it was still possible to adopt. And then Russia, Russia invaded Ukraine and like 40% of natural gas in Europe um, like it comes from Russia and a huge percent of, of, of oil too. And not like, and when we see within like the, when we look within the European Union, so we see countries like Germany, Italy, or Latvia or Hungary. So those countries are even more reliant on Russian natural gas. We're talking about percentages like 50, 60, 70, 80%. And so at that point, measures that were trying to kind of like limiting pricing prices and supporting like, you know, the the population and businesses were just not enough anymore. You cannot just you know, throw money in it. So I guess the most natural, and again, like this frustrates me a lot, uh, consequence and kind of like policy measure that you're adopting sort of like the emergency measure is, yeah, let's let's burn that coal. Let's not like, let's let's make the phase out like extremely late. Uh, let's, let's delay that. Um, Germany, like surprisingly, like Germany has have uh, like has had a, a history of like phasing out nuclear energy for instance right and we see backlashes from on that side as well and like i'm thinking about country like italy my country like i'm thinking about the the new prime minister georgia meloni she's from you, you might know or not but like she's from the uh like far right movement and she was thinking that look, she was talking about proposing drilling the adriatic sea to uh expand natural gas production in italy uh and and this is like, you know, it is concerning. And you're like, what, what is happening right now? What, what implications is that going to have on greenhouse gases emissions and on the future? Um, but then on the other side, I think uh, another thing we're seeing in Europe right now that I think it's concerning is the fact that people are, they're struggling, they're suffering a lot. Uh, I was reading this report that was mind-blowing. Um, like, I think it was from the University of, of York or something like that. It said that by January 2023, uh, like three quarter like of, of the UK population will be fuel, uh, like in, in fuel poverty or like so burdened by like this crisis. And like more than 80% of these people are like retirees. So people that are retired, so old people, vulnerable people or single parents with children. So you see how this is also a matter of 
you know, the population, like people, the vulnerable side of the population, um, really bearing the burden of this rising energy crisis. Countries in the European Union are fearing that people are going to protest and they're going to be, you know, like uprising. And um, if, if you think about like the Gilets jaunes, the movement in France, right, that was um, a, a consequence of a high fuel tax, like we're, we're fearing that because that might, like the consequence of that might be that eventually it becomes even harder to transition because people are like, no, it's, it's expensive. It's so expensive. We don't want this. We just want our government to support us. And I guess we'll, we'll touch upon this point when we talk about uh, maybe like COP, COP27 and the implications of all of this for, for COP27 as well. But I guess that um, the main point is, yes, on the, on the short term, I guess the governments didn't really have a lot of options because they should have, you know, woken up before and said like, yeah, let's switch to renewables, let's invest more, but they didn't. And again, I'm so mad, like Italy, like it, we're a country which is pretty much the opposite of Vancouver, right? Like it almost never rains. There's so much sun. Uh, we, we should have invested in solar and, you know, tried to really, um, try to really be one of the first countries to do that. And we didn't. And now we are in this situation, right? But on the bright note, because now I guess I touch upon the very, the very negative side. But on the bright note, what I think is that, um, like, if you if you if you look at the um, European Union plan, like re repower EU. Um, so this is a plan that, uh, yes, like they want to diversify supply. So they're saying, yeah, let's let's get natural gas from countries in North Africa, like uh, uh, Algeria, or let's get natural gas from Azerbaijan or Norway, other countries, right, to diversify supply. But what they're also doing is uh, like in trying to improve energy efficiency and investing massively on renewables in the long term. So I guess we really have to see, <laughs> to look into this um, and sort of like, this is a short run, this is a long run. And in the long run, I think this was, the energy crisis was a huge awakening call. It was like, no, fossil fuels are not reliable <laughs> as we thought they were. And you need to transition. You need to, you need to, like, this is also kind of goes hand in hand with your energy security. You value your energy security so much as like Europe and other countries like US, every country. Um, so, you know, like this is, this is a strategy. Uh, what last point I want to make is that what really concerns me is the infrastructures. So if you are, cause we know that uh, like to turn to, to kind of like tra tra transition to renewables, we need to put in place infrastructures and those infrastructures are kind of being put in place now and they're going to kick in in the long in the wrong, long run like maybe we're talking about 5 10 15 years but if you are planning on something like to do something like Italy that is planning to you know increase kind of like natural gas production you have to put in place infrastructures and those infrastructures will be functioning in the future as well right so you're like okay what does it mean for the transition like yes you have a long term plan to transition to renewable energy but now you're reacting by uh, maybe in, in putting in place infrastructures that will be potentially lasting for a long time. So what it like, and that potentially in the long run is going to hamper your attempts and your, um, um, yeah, your attempts to transition to, to re renewable energy systems. But I was reading another report from the International Energy Agency that was saying, yeah, no, this energy crisis is actually uh, kind of like the push that we were waiting for to, to say, yes, we are switching to renewables. No, thank you. That was such a great answer. And you've set like the tone right for our next question. And also thank you for highlighting the issue of energy justice. Um, please send us the report you were talking about, um, the fuel poverty in the UK. We will link it in our bio. And so 
Again, on the other hand, the U.S. responded to the energy crisis with the Inflation Reduction Act, Japan with the Green Transformation Program. So like what you were talking about, it might be the right event for like pushing more renewable sources. So what, but again, what Sadashma and I observed is that most of these acts are from global North nations. What do you foresee COP's role to be in addressing energy poverty and global inequality in energy access? And this is the second big question, right? Uh, the, the whole huge inequality between how sort of like the global North is perceiving the energy crisis right now and how the global South is. And again, all these media and press releases that focus mostly and mainly on the global North. And this also makes me mad. There are a lot of things in these energy questions that really make me mad because it's like, this is, uh, this is a first ever uh, or at, at least that's how they have defined it, that this is a first energy, a global energy crisis. So it's not like a crisis that is just affecting Europe. Although, yes, the crisis kind of started there with the whole Russian-Ukraine uh, situation. But this is a crisis that is affecting everyone. And I guess it's, again, it's a result of how highly globalized our world is right now and hyperinflation that is really touching everyone. Like it's not like no one is excluded. Prices are soaring for, for everyone, right? And on top of that, we know that developing countries um, are often those that are hit most, most by, by climate change, although they haven't provoked it, they haven't caused it. So this, again, raises questions of justice. And I know in one of your episodes of, the, of, of your podcast, you talked about um, the recent floods in, in Pakistan. So you have countries like Pakistan that right now are dealing with an energy crisis, so soaring prices for energy uh, high food prices, because we know that the there's a connection between energy and, and food and the food system, because again, of like this whole globalized world and the cost of fertilizers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you're also dealing with the consequences of climate change. So it's, it, and this is somehow like almost ironic because you have this global North countries that are putting so much money and investing so much money in trying to make their econ economies like kind of like stand and support their, their population. And then you see developing countries that are asking and have been asking forever, we need climate finance, which is a huge question for these negotiations. I guess like the two main question marks and the two main themes of these negotiations will be on the one hand, climate finance and then loss and damage, right? We have seen in these climate negotiations and uh, finally they came to the agreement that we need $100 billion a year of climate financing, which has not been like <laughs> reached at all. We're not even close to putting how, how much money like we actually need. So and again, yes, it, it raises the, the question that we've been hearing forever, which is how can you pretend, how, how can you expect developing countries to transition to uh, clean energy systems when you have like, you know, colonized, extracted, and now you're expecting them to like, you know, transition. And I, I, it's, it, again, it's something that blows my mind every time. And, and, but it's something that we see. And Again, the big question at the negotiation table, I guess it will be from, from developing countries, like, yes, you're pouring so much money in your plans. We're talking about, I think like it was $380 billion from the US for like their plan to reduce emissions. And then you cannot get us like 100 billion a year for, for what we need, like for everyone kind of like to be distributed between, between countries that need it. And I guess that, that makes uh, developed countries uh, lose also a lot of kind of credibility, right? Uh, especially given the fact that, as we were mentioning in the first in the first question uh, and the, the first part of, of this conversation, uh, you see that 
developed countries are responding also by increasing the production of, of fossil fuels and by relying on more on coal uh, instead of phasing it out. So that also makes uh, developed countries lose a lot of a lot of credibility. Um, and another concerning uh, data that I was I was kind of reading and, and seeing is that uh, for the first time in a decade or like in decades, like um, people that do not have access to electricity has increased, have increased. So this is also concerning. <laughs> and again, this raises a lot, a lot of questions are, of what are really our priorities at COP27, because right now, unfortunately, I do not see um, like that, you know, supporting and helping developing countries is a priority for a lot of the, glo the global North countries. It's like more, okay, let's try to um, kind of calm this, this soaring skyrocketing prices for our people because like we need to get to energy security, et cetera, et cetera. But the attention that is given to developing countries right now, I don't think it's enough. It's the one that we need right now to kind of, you know, turn to, to completely transform our, our system as we would need to do. As we've heard a lot about climate justice and energy justice in general and equity, I think like people tend to associate the fact that like a renewable energy transition will necessarily be just. I don't think this is, you know, it's not a necessarily thing. Like we need to make it just, but it's not that if we switch to renewables, it's going to be just. Um, we really need to make it happen. But it's not sort of like a magic formula that, oh, yeah, we're transitioning to a clean energy system and therefore we'll have a more just system. No, like you, you have to make it happen. Otherwise, you'll be, again, lost in this capitalist extractive economy that will extract everything that we can in terms of raw materials to the benefit of the global north, while the global south is still struggling with basic needs. I guess what we really have to see um, and pay attention to in this COP27 negotiations will be like whose voices are out there, like who has the biggest voice, like who who who's able to really make their points being heard in the on the negotiation table, because the risk again is to have global negotiations that are dominated by the global north, and it's kind of like they're them dictating the terms of how climate financing is working, how the loss and damage is working. I have thoroughly enjoyed everything that you've said. I think you were very realistic. You were optimistic. You definitely highlighted things that we should be concerned about as well. The topic of energy can be daunting for a lot of people, but thank you so much for explaining it very simply. And I think our listeners will really, really, really like um, everything you've talked about today. So thank you so much for simplifying everything and making it super clear. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking about it. <laughs>
water is supposed to be relatively high in the agenda. Um, so while some cities in Egypt are vulnerable um, due to the increasing level of the Mediterranean Sea, there are also fears of water scarcity, water stress in other cities in Egypt. So speaking from your own like professional experience, how prepared do you think we are for climate risks related to water? Well, I think that's kind of a loaded question there, but um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic generally, but uh, first you have to kind of understand uh, the scale of the issue that we have at hand. Uh, with my background in water uh, and relating that to climate, uh, climate, the effects of climate change is primarily, fe primarily felt through water. Uh, and that the wa the water itself is connected to so many different things, such as food security, energy, uh, as well as livelihoods and the daily lives of people, because water is everywhere. Uh, so relating that to climate, once again, uh, the water cycle is very sensitive. Uh, and going into a bit of statistical hydrology, uh, we normally view extreme events like the ones that we see uh, happening now, like floods. Uh, are normally distributed. So precipitation or rainfall is normally distributed. And we tend to focus a lot on the extreme events that are getting more extreme. Uh, but with the shift of the extreme, whether it's low precipitation drought or floods and high precipitation, uh, the average actually moves uh, the probability of having the average uh, precipitation or temperature. So the normal itself would change over time. Uh, and so that kind of paints that picture and the reason that why I think we would be prepared somewhere down the line. Uh, currently, I think we're a bit off the rails at the moment, uh, but I find that the climate space and water space is very dynamic and interdisciplinary that brings together different stakeholders from different disciplines together. And that's something that really gives me hope uh, as uh, things progress. And it's very important to include uh, these different stakeholders in the conversation, uh, such as youth and women, because we simply cannot afford to not have them and have their talents and perspectives drawn into the conversation of managing climate risks. Uh, so, uh, and it's also dynamic in the sense that there's a lot of different actors. Uh, there's a lot of lawmakers that work on like transboundary management or transboundary climate risks. Uh, but at the same time, we also need economists to make climate finance more viable. Uh, and we need water managers to work on managing the resources that are available and natural resource management. And we need artists and storytellers and communicators to kind of re relay the sense of urgency that the issue has. But taking a look at the kind of timeline that we have and how fast we're seeing these changes, uh, I think we really need to like ramp things up in terms, terms of being prepared for what's coming our way. Thank you. That was a very insightful answer. And like you said, water is really interrelated with all these topics of like food security and economic livelihood is another thing you said. That's where our second question is um, around. So too much water, too less water, both impact the livelihoods of people, mostly in the global south. And these are the countries that also have poor water management and also sanitation issues, right? So how do we tackle this? Can water management go hand in hand with climate adaptation? So, so firstly, uh, water, the availability of water uh, varies on a temporal and spatial scale. Uh, so it's not, it's kind of, there's two scales to how we look at it. And in terms of sustainable development goals uh, and SDG six, 
uh, in particular, I think in 2021 or 2020, there was an assessment of the progress towards the goals for 2030. And the water goal is off by at least two times. And I think some of those sub indicators are off by, I think, four, eight times for transboundary cooperation from my understanding. Um, and, and that requires, that kind of paints the picture of where water management is now. Um, and management does go hand in hand with climate adaptation. The indices that have been revised in the past few years, uh, they, they, they feature water more prominently. Uh, and integrated water resource management, which is SDG goals 6.5.1, um, really focuses on bringing the different stakeholders to the same table to have a conversation on industrial use for water, agricultural use of water, water for energy, uh, water for food. Uh, and I think water management and adaptation go hand in hand. When you look at the NDCs, for example, uh, water is more prominently featured in the adaptation section of those NDCs. And as countries are now adapting their national adaptation plans where water is prominently featured, um, and IWRM as a concept really integrates into the adaptation scheme because you can't manage water well without the management plans being climate sensitive uh, because otherwise it just doesn't make sense and isn't good water management from my perspective. Uh, so water management has started to incorporate climate as kind of one of the major factors. Uh, and that's kind of, so they support one and, another, one and another. So climate finance comes into adaptation for water and that slowly goes towards uh, better water management at the same time. Um, and I think we also have to recognize the indigenous knowledge systems that exist uh, in the water space that, that support water management and I think would support climate adaptation at the same time because the individuals and community members that actually live on the ground and are at the forefront of the crisis and face its impact the most also have the best understanding of the space that they inhibit. So I think it's very important to have multi-stakeholder dialogues, uh, for example, and have this discourse uh, it will be a very messy process, uh, but still that would lead to kind of solutions that would actually work and help in climate adaptation while simultaneously supporting water management at the same time. Mentioned climate finance and Stashma and I have been talking a lot about climate finance and how it's pretty high on agenda for COP27 as well. So I, so I just wanted to ask you, where are we with water financing and things like that? Just like... Is it something that we should look forward to at COP? What do you think is going to come out of it regarding like water financing? So water financing in general, when you look at it uh, in terms of the SDG framework itself, uh, water finance is kind of an area where uh, countries score the least out of all the other indicators. So it's starting to be a major priority in the water world to prioritize uh, financing for water uh, interventions, including climate finance for water. Uh, so it is very high on the agenda, but something that also needs to be recognized is that the water sector is also a user of energy. So at the same time, water utilities have this potential to support climate mitigation, uh, as well as wastewater treatment uh, using byproducts as fertilizer. So there's a lot of things that can also help in mitigation, which needs to be recognized more strongly in the nexus between water, energy, and carbon. Um, but there is an increasing emphasis on adaptation now, and we're we're kind getting to that balance of like emphasizing on supporting the communities that face uh, the the impacts of climate, 
Uh, and the big conversation there is loss and damage uh, for this year, I think. Uh, and that's going to be a big output that I'm waiting to see what happens. But at the same time, with my what I've experienced so far is that the climate adaptation financing is hard to access for a lot of countries. There's a very tedious and lengthy process. When I see countries working towards accessing them, they they have they struggle a lot. So accessibility to the finance is also an issue uh, that needs to be closely looked at. Um, and in the same process. Again, going back to stakeholders, it's important to include them in these processes and how they're going to be shaped because they're the ones that are going to implement it and work on it, but also face the, the impacts or opportunities that they present. Uh, so there's also things such as the global goal on adaptation uh, that was talked about in COP26, which they'll be following up now, as well as there's also a third poll process, which uh, the Arctic Circle started in collaboration with the UAE. Um, this is more to create a network of researchers around the Himalayas, which I'm also looking forward to see how that shapes. And the biggest kind of water conference is going to happen in March 2023 in New York. And I think the COP27 will kind of provide some momentum in realizing water goals over time. You talk so much about like adaptation. So kind of to like dial it back a little bit. Um, and also for the sake of our listeners. Um, so Ronak, like how do you define um, adaptation. And we're honestly like, the one of the reasons why we're asking this is because for our next episode, like in December, we will be covering heavily on loss and damage. Um, and I think that you'd really help us set the scene. So how do you define adaptation? So adaptation is kind of, it's, it's changing according to the new normal. Um, so there a lot of different concepts come into adaptation. And one of interest I think would be resilience. And resilience has like a ton of different uh, definitions depending on the discipline that you look at. Uh, and I think resilience really supports adaptation in the sense of it's a, not just adjusting, but staying into that new normal and being okay with it. So adaptation is kind of the process of changing to a new equilibrium and being okay in it. I guess in, in plain terms, uh, adaptation, the role of adaptation initially was, was not as prominent when COP started out in, in the Paris Agreement. And now it's increasingly being realized. And, and that's how I, I think everyone's kind of winging it to some extent, kind of realizing what things are important and kind of filtering those out and focusing on them. So it, it's the right di direction, but it's just that sense of urgency that's being recognized, but also needs collective action to follow that up. So I think that's kind of uh, where we need to work on the most uh, in terms of adaptation. I totally agree with you. Um, I feel like Simone and I want to ask you like <laughs> 10 more questions, but we have other people joining us as well. Um, but thank you so much, Raunak. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. And I'm so excited to follow more like water news at COP27 and I'm sure our listeners would really appreciate what all you've taught them. Um, I think it's Maria joining us now. Okay. Hi Maria, it's so good finally to have you on Anthropause. You were one of the first few to know about Anthropause and I'm so <laughs> excited you're here. Yes, thank you for being here. Uh, I've heard a lot about you from Simone. So 
before we start anything, let's hear about you. Who are you? Where are you from? What are you up to these days? And, you know, just your background. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Um, so, yeah, my name is Rita. I'm from Ecuador. And I'm like very passionate about environmental justice and also like urban planning and just how like humans and like humans can interact with nature in a more harmonious way that's beneficial to our needs and the planet's needs. Um, and so, yeah, I met Simone in Beloit College and I like I was doing their degree in environmental studies and international relations. Um, and now I'm currently working for Conservation International in Washington, DC. And I like work for the conservation finance division there and focus mainly on like supporting their like carbon team and also their conservation conservation ventures team on like monitoring evaluation and data management um, and like impact tracking kind of tasks yeah that's that's pretty much me <laughs> yes thank you so much um now we're just gonna get right into the questions I feel like Sadashma and I like all this morning we've had calls and we've talked about a lot of like kind of depressing thing. So let's start with a little more positive question this time. Let's start by talking about the election of Luis Inacio Lula da Silva in Brazil. With this, um, according to an article by Guardian, Brazil, along with Indonesia and the um, DRC, the big three tropical rainforests are looking to form a strategic alliance to coordinate on their forest conservation efforts. What do you think this all means, like the election, the conservation, ampling up on this conservation alliance? What do you think it means for at COP27 and also about carbon sequestration? Yeah, so I think that like to understand why Lula's election is like such um, a big deal, like you need to understand what came before that. And that was Jair Bolsonaro. And he had like these very strong like perverse incentives to like expand deforestation in the Amazon through like it, it, he was not really asking for deforestation but like the expansion of agriculture and um, mining and just all of these extractive activities that led to like very dangerous um, levels of deforestation in the Amazon which is like the world's biggest rainforest um, so having Lula as the winner in these very like divided elections, like a major brief and like relief for anybody involved in like conservation and environmentalism uh, because he has very strong stances. Like uh, he, he has pledged to lead Brazil into like zero deforestation. Um, and just like is very concerned about environmental issues. So it's really like a, a an important environmental win. Um, and also Brazil, like this is important, like in a global level because Brazil has um, like the potential to provide like about 
49% of the voluntary carbon market demand. Um, so that's like a, a really big deal, like almost 50% of the entire voluntary carbon market can be uh, supplied by these one single country. So having someone in power that is willing to work for um, these important efforts is like a major relief. Um, and then with with the announcement of like working with the other three major rainforest nations that I like Indonesia and the DRC, um, I think it just brings or shines a light from the international community into these um, initiatives. And that also like will probably increase the support that, that they get and that ultimately leads to like the success of of these efforts. Um, would you be able to define what carbon market is for our listeners in simple terms? Yeah. So the carbon market is still like an ongoing process of being created. Like um, one of like why COP is also so important is because COP is trying to set the guidelines and structure for what the carbon market would actually look like. And then there's also like that divide between the global carbon market and the voluntary carbon market. So what countries pledge to do and like what countries um, commit in terms of like emission reduction. So yeah, basically carbon market is selling and purchasing of carbon credits um, or emission reductions. I totally, um, like, I agree with you that carbon markets, it's like, it's kind of, you know, it's a bit confusing. It's a complex term. Um, I actually had to write a report on carbon market and oh my God, my brain was like, <laughs> this is a lot, you know, but very important. And I believe that like blue carbon markets have also kind of like been a topic of heavy conversation. Um, but yeah, um, to kind of you know, focus on conservation and, um, you know, like also on forests, like the world's like healthiest, most biodiverse and most resilient forests are located on protected indigenous lands. Do you like, how do you anticipate um, indigenous and local communities to get the support that they need, the support that they deserve in COP27? And could you also like, highlight why is the support needed yes yeah, so i think uh, like indigenous people as, as you said like are the stewards of these major biodiversity hotspots and like it's proven that their way of life and uh, like philosophy and like just holistic perspective uh, of how how to live like it's way more harmonious and has led to these major uh, biodiversity hotspots being conserved where whereas uh, places where non-indigenous people live like that's not the reality that we're seeing um, but also indigenous people have been the most like neglected and discriminated against and um, just ignored by governments and society for the longest time and like in, in different countries and in different situations. Um, but it, it's like a common reality that 
that they they faced. Uh, so it's important to put them at the center of all of these because first of all, they're living in the places where the conservation efforts need to happen and like any any efforts to protect the planet um, imply working with them and like making sure that their rights and their livelihoods are met and um, also that their ideas are heard because their knowledge is clearly um, like has clearly led to these great outcomes so like it's it's important to to listen to them and like bring their perspectives and um, ideas to the forefront of of any conservation effort and any like environmental justice effort. Mm -hmm. I feel like there could be so much more we can talk about uh, environmental justice about, but we don't have so much time today. So leading mm -hmm. on to our last question, we really want to know what are some themes that you are following at COP27 this year and what should we and our listeners follow as well? Yeah, I think one of the major topics that will probably, like I hope that's going to be on, on the forefront of COP27 is like the concept of loss and damage and like climate reparations. Um, so that's been something that has been kind of ignored in other clubs and like there's so many like political, um, like yeah, it, it's like a hard concept to grasp, which is like the major polluter countries and like major world economies to to pay for the loss and damage that's being created by climate change in these smaller like developing nations um, that face the greater consequences from climate change and like droughts and yeah are just impacted the most so like how there can be like redistribution of wealth in some some form uh, that helps these nations that are facing the consequences be able to adapt and recover from climate change. Yeah, I think Sudashma and I will co closely be following loss and damage as well. And I was just um, on Twitter looking at what people have been saying about the upcoming COP, and that's already started actually. And people are like, oh, people are already discussing about loss and damage, and they're already negotiators who have been staying up all night trying to get this topic on the agenda on the top. So I really hope this is something that we hear about at this COP. Yeah, me too. I I think it's like super, super needed and like it's been ignored for like way too long and the consequences, like we're, we've seen so many like crazy, like climate events happening this year. Um, so it's it's like really needed now like you cannot wait anymore totally agree with you maria and um thank you so much once again for giving us your time um we're really like you know fingers crossed that um loss and damage is actually on the agenda and there are conversations not just like not just lip service though actual solutions proposed right um, but we will definitely be following it very closely. And um, yeah, thank you. We really appreciate your time. For sure. No, happy, happy to talk to you guys. Joining us now is Manasa Subedi. Hello, Manasa. It has been exactly a year since we last spoke for our episode Passing the Mic. We've missed you. 
so much. How are you doing? Um, I am fine. And yeah, it's fun. It's it's good. I'm good. We had a lot of positive responses from our episode with you and your friends. Many people loved your answers and thought you were a young climate activist in the making. Thank you so much for joining us again. How is school? What grade are you in now? Tell us a little about what you've been up to. Well, I'm in grade five and school, it's really good. Not counting the homeworks and stuff, but otherwise friends and teachers, they're really nice actually. That's, I'm so happy to hear that. I remember grade five used to be it used to be so fun. Uh, one of my best years of my life, for sure. Um, so should we get right into the conversation? Sure. Okay. So Manasa, what do you know about COP27? Like, have you heard about it before? You know, does your family, like, do your family or your friends talk about it? Um, well, I've heard about it in the BBC News. And... My family, they don't really talk about it. So what I know is that it's an inter international climate conference and um, the world, most of the leaders of the world will be there to make plans to tackle climate change. And there won't only be leaders, there will also be activists and scientists and even some young people. You do. You did mention there are a lot of people going to COP, especially young people and young professionals as well. So what do you think is the role of children and youth? What, what do you think the role of them should be at conferences like this? Well, I think they should come. I mean, they should know what's like, they should know what the leaders are going to plan and everything. And if they want to, they can share their views. I agree. So I remember that in our episode, like last year, you were very like passionate about um, delivering the message that the climate crisis is like a children's, like a child's rights crisis, you know? So a year later, what do you think about the statement? So, well, I think that because, um, Child rights is about getting food, getting health services, being safe, let's say, like the right to live. So um, climate change, it's been affecting this. Like if with climate change, there it's harder to get food. It affects farming and it, and you know, a ch growing child won't be able to get food. So it needs to be healthy. And secondly, it won't, um, it, this world, be, because of climate change, it might lead to wars. So that child, they, it will, it will be very dangerous in the world. And not only will it be outside that, outside, but inside they will be, they'll feel scared or scared and kind of depressed, you know? So what, like, do, are you optimistic? Like, are you, or do you feel 
scared thinking about climate change still because I remember last year you did sound optimistic and um, you did you were very encouraging um, so what is your perspective now kind of do feel I mean I do feel scared like it's 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 been leading to so many things and so many dangerous things I mean right now the world's so cool and climate change is one of them all I hope is that we will find something to deal with it like so at the same time I'm feeling scared and then I'm also hoping for something better something really better thank you for such a positive message um, so last year when there was the COP happened in Glasgow, last year they did not prioritize children in their agenda at all. Let's say you were representing Nepal at COP this year. What would your message be to the world? I would say since this is a message that um, is addressing to grown-ups mostly, I guess, because they're the ones who are causing it. So I would say that this has been a problem for many years and our actions till now haven't been enough. So we should work harder and we should act now because if we don't, our planet's going to be as lifeless as the others. Marasa, that was great. I think you spoke very very well very strongly and um we really hope that um children you know will be a part of um the cop 27's agenda because children are the future right remember i remember you telling yes. us that last year children are the future right i just wanted to say your message was very powerful and i really hope in the future you do go represent nepal at cox sometimes in the future so thank you so much thank you so much for listening to our episode today we hope you enjoyed it episode 5 part 2 mid cop 27 will be out next week share our episodes with your friends and family we need to talk more about the climate crisis because it is already here please follow us on instagram and tiktok to keep this conversation going links will be attached below